Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I am joined by James Rundle. James? Hello. So, we've dispensed with doing the titles. Our titles aren't a thing. I feel weird saying that or at large. So. It's because he's just got an inferior title. Now. Yeah, he exactly. I can't, can't have this anymore. Well, you can't be the host and have an inferior title, right? You know? the voice. I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. that's, that's half the battle, right? So. <laughs> so, today we are going to look at a potential big acquisition in the capital market space with NASDAQ uh, snapping Before up change, Sinober. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about 10 years later, uh, Lehman uh, going under and what have we learned. So I guess to start off with, since you wrote the article, NASDAQ, um, we have a profile up of Lars and... Who, who Brad Peterson to? from NASDAQ. Yep. Yeah, so that goes through kind of NASDAQ's uh, two arms, really. One is the internal technology business and called Global Technology, and one is the vendor arm called Market Technology. Uh, and this is very much to do with the second part, the market technology part. So NASDAQ has made an all-cash bid for uh, Cinebus shares, um, mm-hmm. which values it at around $190 million. Uh, So that's been recommended to shareholders. It's been recommended by Cinebus board as well. I guess maybe before, to give a little bit of the background of of how this all kind of came about. Yeah. Um, yeah so, yeah, Cinebus has, has had a bit of a sketchy year, I think is probably the best way to describe it. Um if you're not familiar, Cinnabar is a Swedish technology provider headquartered in Stockholm, I believe. Um, and it sells clearing technology, it sells surveillance technology, um, trade reporting, that kind of thing as well. Um, pretty well regarded, I think. It's got a good client list as well at the New York Stock Exchange, uh, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange as well. Um, this year, it had some pretty disappointing financial results in the second quarter. Um, very shortly after we published a profile of the CEO, Veronica Rogerson, which is great. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, at the time, they said they're going to have to do some cost cuts. They might have to eject some of the businesses. Um, Veronica Rogerson didn't last very long after that, unfortunately. She was uh, she was out and then replaced by Peter Lenardos. Yep, that was in who, August. Yes, that was in August. Um, he was a banks analyst at, um, well, he's an exchange analyst, actually, at uh, RBC Capital Markets. Um, but then that didn't really stop them losing a number of big names. So Jamie Curse had left their uh, regulatory reporting service. Um, Frederick Nealon. Frederick Nealon, yeah, uh, became the the group CFO. Oh, became the CFO, yeah, sorry. Uh, I can't remember who he replaced, though. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, and really it just seemed like the company was in a bit of trouble. Yeah. Um, so when NASDAQ announced this, I think it was last Friday, um, it wasn't a really massive surprise, I guess. Um, the price seems probably about right for a company that is teetering on the edge of breaking up. Mm-hmm. Um, what it's, I find, sorry. Well, no, maybe just I'll jump into what I find interesting, then mm-hmm. we can see if uh, if you agree on this. But as a, as opposed to uh, many of the other big acquisitions that we've seen over the past uh, few months, this one is. It seems. It's. I think it's fair enough to say that. It's a direct result of some serious turmoil. Yeah. And the problem that you always see with those kind of acquisitions is the people that are staying on, how gung-ho are they really to stay on? You know, are, is this going to be just stripped down, put to pieces? You know? Is it like an asset sort of play kind of thing? Exactly. We're, we got yet on the cheap, and then we kind of just, we're going to instill our people and just take your technology Ooh. and cut you out almost as the middleman. Or 
is there kind of can this be the the rescue boat? But it is interesting when it is one, you know, in some ways a competitor, right? Yeah, uh, and I was thinking that when I first read it, I was like, why do they want to buy Cinema? They've already got smarts on the surveillance side, which is you sure. know, the I guess the kind of the market leader. Yeah. Um, Won all of our awards it. anyway. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, the clearing side of it, like, okay, they've got NASDAQ clearing that runs the technology. They've got their various sort of bits and pieces as well. Uh, and on the trade reporting side, I mean, they don't really have anything, I guess, significant there, but they do have stuff in that area. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is to do with why this kind of works, actually, in a way, and why I don't think it's going to be... Um, uh, Bloodletting. Exactly, yeah, or like a kind of just a big gold rush for the assets is that... Um, they're based in Stockholm. They have a very big London team. NASDAQ Market Technology grew out of the Swedish OM Group, which is based in Stockholm, has a very presence in London. Mm-hmm. They're kind of, um, they're simpatico, you know, the cultures kind of work with each other, that kind of thing. Um, and I spoke to Lars Ottersgaard, who's the head of Market Technology, uh, and he said, yeah, you're like, you know, we know their team. They've got pretty good skills. Um, we can speed up our growth in areas that we are not necessarily that strong in, but we can also add a lot to theirs as well. Whether... Um, Cinebus products themselves remain distinct is another question. I think that is probably not going to happen. Yeah. Unnecessarily, because why would you operate two separate, you know, surveillance platforms? Sure. Um, maybe the clearing side for sure. Also, I mean, if I was people like the Nazi and stuff like that, I'd be like, NASDAQ's providing our technology now, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it'll be an interesting um, period to see. Also, and bear in mind, you know, this isn't a done deal. A lot of people reported that NASDAQ has bought them, and that's not the case. They're, they're recommending the tender off the shares. That's going through. It's still these times people come in with a rival bid or to maybe launch a hostile takeover. And as we saw with Temenos, none of this is finalised. As we, we saw, saw with Temenos, exactly. As we saw with BGC and, and GFI and CME, um, you know, and various other things as well. Um, I don't think anybody is necessarily going to come in and try and challenge it. I mean, I don't see ICE having a massive interest in it, for instance. Could regulatory bodies step in? Because as you were saying, could like NYSE, Johannesburg, or something like that complain that NASDAQ yeah. is the one buying? Could the competition they come and authorities, for sure. I mean, I would be... Um, I mean, I'd be kind of surprised if there weren't a few concerns that suddenly NASDAQ is controlling all of the surveillance software mm-hmm. sort of side of things. Um whether Cinnabar has that kind of expansive client base to justify or trigger some kind of like competition markets authority investigation, I don't think that's the case, but yeah. it does require regulatory approvals as well, um, which, you know, Lars was, 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 didn't say very much, but did say they've done their due diligence and they're pretty confident. Um, and, you know, I'm going to put you on a spot, you know, for my knowledge, really, you know, I guess these are really the two companies with Smarts, with Cinnabar. Hmm. They're the ones I think of. Are there any other players in the space that either maybe can be able to now go into some of these clients of Sonoba and say, you don't want NASDAQ and that, you know, or maybe we can step in or? Yeah, I mean, there's always the finesses of the world. It runs a, you know, um, it depends who you're targeting. If you're looking, because, you know, smarts can be adapted for buy side, for sell side um, in the broker segment or for exchanges or for regulators, whereas a lot of the other surveillance providers seem to go pretty much for like one specific part of that. Um, but there's always a chance that maybe like the LSE steps in or something as well, or um, or Fidesa, or but then again, Fidesa is going through its own acquisition process, <laughs> um, or uh, actually people like Sealer maybe and that kind of thing as well. Um, you know, they're not talked about very much, but they they have a relatively large client base as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, like there is definitely I, I think a risk of someone going, hmm, actually, we'll step in and do this. Yeah. Um, especially one of the sort of European, continental European companies, um, or the Northern European specialists. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think that you know it's certainly be interesting if anybody has any thoughts on that acquisition or what this means for the space. Obviously, our emails and phones are always opened. Um, but yeah, let's. I guess we'll have to kind of wait to see if it's finalized. But I think those will be kind of the major questions. You know, when I got to imagine that, you know, having worked in the past um, at companies that were struggling, you know, working at a newspaper, I was struggling mightily. Mm-hmm. The culture can dwindle quickly. Yeah. Um, and then somebody comes in, and all of a sudden now you're worried for your job. You're worried, how do I fit in? Will I fit in with this? Is this now time for me to start looking forward? I and then you I mean, have that yeah. brain drain happen. It can, it can, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an avalanche. It just all of a sudden you, you go out of business undernight. You know? I mean, I, I think if I was working for Cinnabon, though, I'd be pretty positive about this, considering what they've been through already this year. <laughs> leaving prospects of big swinging cuts, and then losing a CEO, and then having a new one put in, and changing your top ranks at your various divisions um, you know suddenly having a giant like Nasdaq coming is probably a bit of a boon for them and they're yeah. just probably going actually yeah, that's great I want to work for Nasdaq yeah, that's a good name for my CV so why not um, and it probably stabilizes the ship okay um, the other thing we want to talk about is uh, we are now 10 years uh, later after the collapse of Lehman Brothers yeah and two things a, a couple you know common threads that have caught my eye was and uh, uh, was it the Bloomberg uh, uh, editorial board wrote an, an uh, opinion that said we never learned from Lehman ten years after the bank collapsed the financial system remains too fragile and Wall Street uh, and this is an opinion piece in uh, Washington Post but Wall Street never learned its lesson after Lehman Brothers and I can understand where some of this comes from certainly I gotta believe. That just listen to somebody tweeted this. God, I can't remember the guy's name, unfortunately, and I chopped off the thing, so I'm not going to give the credit where credit is due on this. But um, somebody just put up like a list of just some of the major regulations, and I'll just name a few of them, but obviously Dodd Frank, mm-hmm. MIFID II, um, AFMD, Form PF were huge back uh, to, to provide insights into, um, into hedge funds. Uh, SFTR is on the way. Um, GDPR is a monster yep. that people don't really necessarily read about. Um, USITS 5, the benchmark regulation. And USITS 4 as well. And USITS 4. Um, so many. EMEA, like huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Like completely rewrote the playbook on derivatives in Europe. It's just, and yeah. as markets have become intertwined, I don't think that people realize this as. But American firms are getting very much caught up in European regulation, yeah. and European-based firms are getting caught up in American regulation. And you would hope that this will stem because there will be, like, like everybody's talking about like there's going to be a recession in 2020. And we dr- recessions happen like bubbles burst. You know, it's learning lessons and making sure that the results aren't as catastrophic as the last one. To say that we learned that Wall Street has learned nothing, and that the that the industries learned nothing, I don't. That's to say then that all those regulations are basically useless to me. I don't, or maybe I'm reading it wrong. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I've seen this rendered two different ways. One is that Wall Street never really cared in the first place and is just biding its time. Sure. Another one that the new generation of bankers that are coming through now and starting to get promoted into the SVP and sort of you know MD ranks and that kind of thing. Um, are ones who came in after the crisis and didn't mm-hmm. see 2008. I mean, that, that seems like a very short time, but it has been 10 years since yeah. then. Um, I think it's baloney. 
quite frankly. I mean, just looking at that list of stuff, I mean, think back in 2008. The reason why it was Lehman's collapse was so destructive is because no one really knew how exposed they were to Lehman, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and to these other ones that went down, Best Earns, to uh, to AIG, to, to other people as well. Yeah, Merrill. Um, you know, and people were sort of there at, in Sunday at 3 o'clock in the morning trying to figure out what the hell was going wrong with Lehman Brothers and how it was going to affect the market, and no one could tell. Now you have central clearing in derivatives markets, and all standardized derivatives pretty much, like from credit through the rates, through the FX, mm-hmm. are cleared in some fashion um, and collateralized properly. You have reporting of trades, so regulators know what's going on um, in equities and listed markets as well as OTC markets as well. You have extraordinary um, levels of uh, of regulatory capital that banks have to keep to one side. Um, some argue that's not quite constructed properly, and when you get to into the weeds of things like the leverage ratio, maybe they have a point there. But the fact of the matter is that banks are much better capitalised than they were before the crisis. Mm-hmm. You have living wills, you have stress tests, you have everything else going on. You have a series of emboldened and empowered regulatory agencies. The CFTC was a sleepy little regulator who kind of, everyone assumed, just handled farmers in the Midwest. right? Yeah. You know, and now they're kind of a powerhouse in Washington, um, thanks to Title Seven of the Dodd-Frank Act. And, uh, oh, no, he, he just paused because I was about ready to sneeze, and so Jim's like, is something wrong? Go <laughs> <laughs> on. So it's my birthday. I don't want to get older. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way, Tony. Thank there you. Thank now you. we're talking about leaving. Yeah. Um, and like various other things are in place to ensure that what happened in 2008 just can't happen again necessarily. Yeah. Because you, I mean, you just can't have it. You have something bad might happen, but that doesn't mean that Wall Street learned nothing. Well, that, now we have a plan. That's and then like, also yeah. this idea, like let's stop being children. And I and I love it when people in the media are children. Mm. Yes. What is the fiduciary responsibility of a Wall Street firm? It is to make money. And yes, they're going to, as long as stock markets exist, sleazy shit will be yeah. done. Well, they don't like regulation. People will look no for an edge. They will yeah. always complain about regulation. They will always say we're too overregulated. This is not a new story in 2018. It was a, This has been the conversation that has existed for the history of trading Back to, you know, the 1600s. Exactly. You know, it's of like, course. yeah, this is it. Like the Tudor crisis. Like that. Yeah. You know, of course it has. And that's the thing. Like, you know, the biz- as you say, the business of Wall Street is to make money. Yeah. It isn't necessarily Greed concerned good, with friends. the wider socio-political. That's the job of government to put these yeah. rules in place. And government did step in after 2008, and it did that. Yeah. With 1,200 pages of Dodd-Frank with, you know, the, the, common, uh, the common refrain is that if you put together all of the pages of regulation produced since the crisis and stack them up, it'd be higher than the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot has been done. Um, even in arcane parts of the market that a lot of these financial reporters don't deign to cover, like, you know, central security depositories and that kind of thing. CSD rate was a massive piece of regulation that no one really covers. Yeah. Um, along with Emir, along with MIFID. Um, uh, now, I don't disagree entirely, but I would put a different spin on it. I think the concern now is that after all this good work that was done after 2008, mm-hmm. people have to be on guard for banks trying to roll it back, whether sure. it's through the front door, whether it's through the back door, whether it's through having a um, particularly amenable administration to it or people who are in charge of certain regulators who came from industry mm-hmm. who allow that to happen. Um, what you don't want to do is undermine um, the efforts of this regulation, all the hard work that's gone into it to make the market safer, but banks turn around saying, listen, we're in a bull market. We're safe. Like you can see, like you know, the market's never been better. The Dow's hit twenty thousand um, points 
allow me to free up my derivatives trading arm so I can lend to Main Street, which makes yeah. no sense whatsoever, which people always bamboozled by. You know, the, yes, the, the trading arm makes profits for the bank to continue, but it doesn't store the money used to lend out to people who want to buy homes. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and that's the worrying thing we're starting to see now. Uh, we're starting to see, uh, especially with the, the House Financial Services Committee, with Jeb Hensarling, um, who's in charge of it there, arguing that rules should be relaxed on payday lenders because they're a vital part of the American economy. Like, since when? These guys are predators. Yeah. You know, all that... Um, Capital ratios should be relaxed on banks because obviously they're doing okay, despite the fact that Deutsche Bank fails every test it goes into. Or like you yeah. know, I mean, I'm just using Deutsche as an example. Um, I'm sure it doesn't, but or maybe it does. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, you know, the fact of the matter is that the the walls are only as strong as you make them at the end of the day. And if you start chipping away at it to use that stone to build different parts of the base, then guess what? You end up with crappy walls. Um, and I think that one thing that was also made very very clear is. We write about this stuff for a living. If you're listening to this, you probably are in some way care about the capital markets. Yeah. You know, maybe a few of you are just you know straight up just interested and know what's happening in technology, though I would imagine you've already skipped past this part then. Sure. But the financial markets are insanely complex. I don't really understand them quite far. I, I consider myself more of a technology writer mm-hmm. um, than anything else. And you know, anything regulation, I just kind of I'm like, James, you handle, I don't know what the hell is happening here. You know, as, as you so eloquently put all the, the troubles and everything in the market, I'm just like, I, yeah, whatever, I don't know what the hell is <laughs> But I think that, especially in this day and age, where the news stories, many of the news stories that we, that are just amplified to hysterical levels, yeah. it drowns out these important everyday things, financial product, payday, loan, these things that do really affect you, your neighbor, everybody around you it's kind of like voting in local elections don't really cares about we just care about voting for president very similar here we're caring about big national news you know kind of controversies stuff like that not really focusing and on um on what's happening underneath and as thomas uh, jefferson said you know you need a well-informed electorate in order to have we do um, and listen, we mock, we mock people like Rist on our sister magazine all the time and stuff for being the nerds of the newsroom because sure. um, they're always going on about leverage ratios and Cecil and that kind of thing. These things are important, and yeah. this, this is how things change. Like when people start weakening those rules, um, yeah. they come in, the, but that's too complicated for the man on the street to understand. Yeah. But you can't talk to people about how the treatment of initial margin under the leverage ratio should be changed um, yeah. because it. It prohibits client clearing because everyone's going to Trump, fall asleep. A story about a Donald <laughs> Trump tweet is going to get much more clicks than a story about leverage ratio, right? Exactly. It's just, yeah. and that's just the way that the society we are. It doesn't mean that you know our, our job as journalists is to keep on reporting on this stuff and keep um, to our job as watchdogs, I guess, no, uh, from yeah, that exactly. perspective. But and it is difficult. Like you know, the banks do have a point in some things. Like again, leverage ratio, but also um, you know, some elements of making the market safer have created risks in their own right. So clearing houses, for instance, are now too big to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more concentration of risk in terms of people handling client clearing and that kind of thing. Um, but I think the important thing to do is is to to guard against what that Bloomberg was it that Bloomberg news story you said? Uh, Bloomberg uh, uh, editorials in Bloomberg and Washington Post and in the Washington Post right okay um, I'm sure there were others out there as I'm well. sure the New York Times and the Guardian have run several as well um, mm. what's important is to keep that in mind though and make sure that things don't change like too much some things do need to be relaxed and you need to adjust regulation as time goes on and as markets matter but you know you can't just strip it all away well and yeah I guess that's also a problem just 
in media circles in general, if you aren't used to covering these topics, if you don't have a level of understanding that, you know, the folks on risk have, it's easy for those stories to get wrong or misconstrued and or overblown or just or they get swept under the rug, you know, whatever it may be. And that's it's always going to be a trial. It's always going to be an uphill battle because as newsrooms shrink and expertise leaves organizations and stuff like that. Well, it's not like you just pull a kid out of J school and uh, all yeah. of a sudden they're going to be able to cover, you know, Dodd Frank. You know, yeah, it's just so not going to happen. Go down to Washington and talk to Hester Pierce, guys. Yeah. Come on, you know, this is fine. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was in that. I was. I, I was a sports reporter before I started for American Banker. Before I started working for American Banker, I was a sports reporter. Hey man, I covered Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I had some yeah. very, very smart people around me to make sure I didn't do anything too stupid or blow anything up. Yeah. Um, but you see this across newsrooms, hence why it's always important. You know that. It, once institutional knowledge leaves, you don't just replace that with a new body next man up, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's why making financial reporting is so difficult. And, exactly. And, and on the journalism so side, actually, I think that um, that's a really good point. Like you know that that um, influx of new talent who didn't live through subprime and didn't live through the, yeah. um, the subsequent sovereign debt crisis and stuff, like we did. Um, yeah. You know, you get reporters in now who are fresh out of J school and have no idea like how long it took to get to Mifid 2 and like why it's so important and literally we interviewed uh this was who are we i can't remember whose position we were filling for but uh we were hiring just somebody you know junior reporter to mm-hmm. come on staff here in the u.s and one girl came in and you know what's one just one question you know what were maybe it was like maybe it was something like to the effect of what were some of the lessons learned from the financial crisis and she said, well, I was only like 10 years old when it happened, so I really don't remember. It's like, well, you probably should have done a little bit of it's research really before you came in for an interview. But, but, my God. <laughs> but you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, yeah, they, they might have seen their mom and dad fretting about it at the kitchen table and stuff like that. But they certainly weren't going to be reading the New York Times about what was happening, you know, no. uh, as that was all unfolding, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Which probably dovetails nicely to our... Last point, right? I think so. Um, so, one thing that also should be, no, nothing ever learns is we allow universities to really just get away with some crazy things and just to, <laughs> why is college so damn expensive in the United States? It's still... And why is it four years, guys? Yeah. yeah. So, well, for me, it was seven and a half. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> for me, it was one. <laughs> So I was reading an article about uh, NYU is offering a blockchain major to New York University, very and prestigious is this, university. Is this a four-year undergraduate degree in blockchain? So let's see here. I, I got it pulled up here. Because uh, that is absolute bollocks. So it'll be provided <laughs> by the New York Stern School of Business, which is you know one of the um, – they offer, also offer cryptocurrency and blockchain – so yeah, this would be a major. How do they even find people pursue. to teach this stuff? It's only been around for like seven years. I mean, and you know, I I just kids colleges keep on convincing people that you need to take this stupid class, get mm-hmm. this stupid degree, spend stupid money, and there is no they get they are allowed to do this at will, and they're gonna be. You see this all the time in journalism, certainly. Yeah, I went to Plattsburgh State, and I got so I got a, a BS in journalism. <laughs> BS. Hey, um, it's apt. But 
it was, listen, it didn't cost me a lot. It was a state school. Right. Um, well, it still cost it, you a fortune by UK standards. By right? UK standards, certainly, but I, I wasn't in debt, you know, when I came out of school. Any debt I had was because I was spending seven and a half years and not always studying. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but you see this all the time in journalism school where you're, they're, you're told, oh, yeah, Come to this expense, you know. Come to Syracuse, Northwestern, Missouri. You know these prestigious, you know NYU, um, New School. Come here, get your education, Columbia, and then get your masters. You know, because yeah. you got to have your masters. And sure, yeah. So you, you BA in journalism and your MA in in communications yeah. or something, right? I mean, and certainly, yeah. some of the greatest journalists of this generation went that route, and it worked out well for them. Sure. I can't tell you how many resumes I see of where it did not work out well for them, and they are now massively, massively in debt to the point I don't know how the hell you ever get out of it, quite yeah. frankly. Which is compounded the interest yeah. month to month, right? If, uh... At least it, when I was in college, I had uh, my professor, uh, Sean Murphy, great, great teacher. One of the, he was in J-O, the JOU 101 class, like very first class that you take. And he said something to the effect of, you know, listen, in journalism, odds are you're not going to get rich. You'll hopefully do a good enough job to be able to pay the bills, but you're going to have to work harder than many of your friends that are in other. And he just painted the picture and he said, listen, this is the way it is. You yeah. know, this is, you know, it's it's a good job. It's a good career. It's exciting. It's fun. It's all that. And you can make enough to live, but you know, you're not going to be driving a Mercedes more than likely. You know, you might not own that beautiful house in uh, the suburbs. Maybe you know? lightning will strike and you get taken on as economist for MIT or something, a uh, hundred grand a year. Doing Some, something something might happen yeah. a long way, but you, that will come through massive hard work and effort. And there are only so many positions that, of that kind available. But you have all time in J school. Like, they are just robbing kids blind, just making them think that you got to pay all this money when all you need to do in journalism, be able to talk with people, yep. have the communication skills. You need to be able to write well, yep. um, and edit well, things like that. And you need to be able to do research. You can take other majors, quite frankly, and many, many people do. Like, you look at Wired staff, those are all scientists that are all writers for Wired, you know? Whenever I've given any advice to, to journalism students or, like, people who are thinking about going into journalism, and, yeah. and I'm sure you've done this a lot as well, I had, like, family and friends who said, oh, you know, my son's thinking of doing this, can you talk to him, that kind yeah. of thing. I've always said to them, go to, if you want to go to college, go to college, it's great. Get your degree, it gives you a key to step in the door somewhere, right? Yeah. Don't do journalism. Yeah. Do history, do English if you want to, do sciences, do whatever the hell it takes a foreign language, you know, whatever. Something that gives you a bona fide classic subject. Journalism, you can learn everything you need to know by working in a newsroom for three months, mm-hmm. I think, and then you'll know everything you need to know yeah. on a daily newspaper. The thing I do like about journalism, to give the opposite side of that as somebody that did get the journalism yeah. degree, is that you can take a journalism degree it teaches you the skills how to do many, many other jobs, right? You mm-hmm. can then say, I'm good at interviewing. I'm good at writing. I have writing abilities. I have um, those, uh, research those abilities things, and stuff like that. Those things are generally intrinsic to the person, right? I mean, like you, can teach, you can teach the kind of the mechanics of it. You can teach body language, and you can teach shorthand, and you can teach, um, you know, how to do inverted pyramid and AP style and stuff. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that if you can't write worth a damn, yeah. You're not going to be a journalist. Yeah, if you can't talk to up. people, basically, because your personality type is that or whatever, you're not going to be effective as a journalist. Yeah. If you 
don't have a work ethic and you're not prepared to put in the hours for very little reward, you're not going to be a good journalist, especially yeah. at the beginning of your career. Yeah. You know, and if you expect the fact that you're going to come out of J school, move to New York City, be able to live in Manhattan and, you know, ultimately buy a house or something, then good luck, my friend, because, and, you know, please hire me because I want that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time. It takes a long time, you know, but and so this is because we know journalism well, so that's what we talk about. But, mm. you know, how many people come out with their accounting degrees, with their law degrees, and just there's Law's nothing the there I mean, for them? That's my personal, like, kind of bugbear. Obviously, because as regular listeners know, my wife recently graduated law school and passed the bar and is now working as an attorney. It is almost impossible to get a job outside of New York City that pays you anything near a level wage. Sure. Law. And that's the that's the real rob- robbery of this. It's, you know, they promise you do your undergraduate degree as a prerequisite for law school. Have to do it four years. Take your LSAT. Go to law school for three years. It's going to cost you 150 grand. But when you come out, you'll be a qualified attorney and you'll be commanding a salary of at least sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Yeah. It's Utter, utter bollocks. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the worst thing is that for these students who come out thinking that, they go and get a job at some law firm in Long Island and getting paid, you know, what would be considered under the wage in New York City for a qualified attorney. Um, you know, you have to make your loan payments every month. If you don't, you get disbarred. So, yeah. And the same thing with the medical profession and stuff like that. You know, if you're, yes, if you're working in Chicago in the main general hospital there or New York or Los Angeles or whatever, you're going to make some good bucks as a trauma surgeon or whatever. Yeah. If you're working in a small town clinic somewhere in Nebraska, chances are you're not. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. And yet, you know, Barack Obama only finished paying off his law school um, loans when he was the president. Yeah. So it's just a, it's a huge, huge con. And bring it back to what we were originally talking about, allowing institutions like NYU to offer courses in blockchain, Yeah, which is going to be around... I don't mind you offering years. courses in blockchain. Offering, yeah. saying this is a viable major that you can graduate with an NYU degree and then... Yeah. And then what? It's, it's the underwear p- pants known from South Park, you know? Yeah, yeah. Take the class, middle piece, I don't know, third piece is profit. It's profit, you right, know? exactly. It's blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. You know, it's, it, and also more full on the idiot students who take it as well. But like, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually a degree course in blockchain. It's not just a module or anything. Yeah, it's, no, it's a, a full-on, as I understand it, assuming that this story is correct, the program board will provide New York's term business, also pioneering around cryptocurrencies and blockchain professional... It was a quote from me. We hope to establish a groundwork so that the students can understand what's really happening under the hood so that they can understand both the legal and the business implications and prepare them to go out and tackle this new market. How are you going to teach this? They haven't even worked this out themselves. <laughs> I mean, like, it's still being debated right now. Like, is this trying to draw up standards for it? You know, lawyers are trying to draw up standards for it. It is nonsense. I mean, if you're going to go to a college as good as NYU, like, do something that's yeah, worth it. How much about. is that going to cost for that, that degree? And yeah. what jobs are out there right now with the specialty in blockchain right now? Well, it's like MIT is making a fortune now offering these sort of eight, ten week courses on artificial yeah. intelligence and that kind of thing, which is basically just a 101, right? Yeah. I mean, you know. I don't know. So, yeah, I, there's no oversight to this. There, you're just allowed to offer anything and then tell people, yeah, come here and we, you know, we'll get you the network. We'll help you. It's like, and then once you graduate. <laughs> You are on your own, your, they are yeah. not getting you a job. You will have to go and find that job on your own. And, and you're probably going to have to move to California for it as well. I yeah. mean, you know, this is the thing. So lessons learned. Don't take stupid modules or courses at university on blockchain or cryptocurrency. If you're a journalism student, maybe think again about that four-year you know, degree. If you got a it's, kid, man, just teach that kid right now how to program. Have them just let them become a coder or programmer right now. Yep. 
and then they don't even have to worry about college. They can just I say, don't. you know what, I already have an expertise in this because I've been doing it since I was eight years old. So. Well, there's a whole former sales director who's taking his kid around, you know, his kid's called Highly on his, uh, is it the SATs that's serving yeah. college entry? Um, yeah. So he's looking at, like, Princeton, he's looking at RPI, he's looking at sort of, you know, all these various, high, Yale, I think, and that kind of thing. And his dad's looking around going, yeah, so I'm going to pay for this if you become a software engineer. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if you want to go and do sports, buddy, this is, uh, this is it yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's our uh, from one kid who took seven and a half years to get a BS in journalism, and another one that uh, went to school degree, for about so a year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we are experts, I think, in we this are, field. Yes, <laughs> this is it. You should listen to us. All right. Well, we will be back next week. Uh, I'm pretty sure we got a big guest. Big guest. It's either next week or the week after. Can't remember. Um, we we have a couple uh, good things coming up for yeah. you all over the coming weeks. Um, it won't just be us blathering on. Thank and you. you can listen. I normally don't like to, you know, pimp out anything that, you know, Riss does because they're a competitor as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But if if you liked hearing the smooth-sounding baritone voice of Dan DeFrancesco from his days back on Waters Technology, uh, doing or doing the Waters podcast here, um, he will now be doing one uh, for Riss. One episode, I'm not, they're not sure if it's going to be more gonna, than that. Are they going to publish it or are they just going to do it internally? I'm pretty sure it's going to be that this, yeah, they have a guest coming in, and yeah, oh, it's right, going okay. to be, yeah, this it's going is to be proper. Dan's going to try and essentially eat our lunch again. Yeah. And, uh, yep. you know, it wasn't bad enough that he left us to become a technology reporter for yep. risk, yep. but he's now doing a podcast. <laughs> so feel free to send him uh, dead cats. Yeah. You, you know, know, don't listen to it, actually. Never mind. Yeah, don't, yeah, so if, you, if you value our input, don't yeah. listen to it. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, thank you, and we will see you next week. See you next week.